Good morning. Good morning. Um, it's good to be among friends. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Ryan. I am the church planner in residence at um, Emmanuel Nashville, and I consider it the biggest joy and privilege to sit here with you um, and to be with you, and I'm actually going to try not to cry. <laughs> um, and I say that because uh, even as I was working through this, this, as I was working through this passage to prepare to be with you, I thought, this is you. Um, this is you to me, uh, to my family. Um, and so I thank God for you. I thank God for what he's already doing in and through you. So thank you. Um, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to keep going, even if, even if I do have a tear. If you have your Bibles or an app, please open with me to James um, chapter 2. Uh, we'll be in verses 14 through 26. Again, this is James chapter 2, verses 14 uh, through 26. So as you're turning there, uh, the text, it reads like this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham your father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray really fast. Uh, Jesus, we ask for your spirit. We ask for you to show us your glory and we ask for you to teach us through your word um, about what it means to love you deeply and walk with you humbly. And we pray all of this in your name. Amen. So what good is it if you learn one plus one equals two and you always put four? What good is it if you fear the dark and you never use a light? What good is it 
if you have an engineering degree, but you never put to practice the principles of your degree to your work? What good is it if you sit with a contractor to build your house and you choose to use all the improper materials suggested? I'm just trying to cover the bases a little bit here. There's probably so many other things that you can say, this is knowledge and this is action um, to be covered in this room. But if none of those really resonate with you, uh, comedian, theologian, Louis C.K. actually once said, I have a lot of beliefs and I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of a thing I want, I sure as heck just do what I want to do. My little believies. It's the rub we all feel is when we get this divide between what we believe and how we live. But what happens when we separate that which is clearly meant to be joined together? And the opposite of living with integrity by definition is living divided. And I think James here is trying to push even deeper what it means to live with integrity. Like taking oxygen from the lungs or blood from the heart. We just can't do it. We shouldn't do it right? We, just like the hearers in James' time, are easily divided in our believies and our actions. And our friends and family that we run into are just as divided in their believies and their actions. So as we enter into James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, we step into an important conversation that James has already been having with the Christians he's writing to. So for James, I just want us to know this is a heavy topic but he approaches it with tenderness. And you can tell that by looking right at the beginning of verse 14. He says, my brothers, he's speaking to them as a family member. And in this tenderness, he asks a leading question. What good is it? And the answer is blatantly obvious because James repeats himself with another rhetorical question after that. What good is it? Can faith without works be alone? And we know that just by reading that, that James is taking us somewhere. And the answer he wants us to see as clear as day. But the challenge of this text lies in the heart, in the desire for us to make the sense of what God ultimately cares about. What does God ultimately want? If the God who is there cares, what would he care more about? Is it that I believe in him or is that I do good things for him? The clear tension of this text is the integrity of a person's life and it lives or it dies on how they answer this question. What good is it? Can faith be without works? And I think the remedy to our divided nature, our world's divided nature is here in this text. And we see here that faith for James, faith in the real Jesus shapes the whole person, the whole person. 
So you see this text, though we see the clear divide between what we believe and what we do, we are called back into the story of God, back to what God intended to see. A story where in the beginning we believed in God and we walked with God and we talked with God and we fulfilled every need that God had given us to fulfill with those around us and with the world that he created. And the result of that was a deeply satisfying friendship with God. And we lived in total integrity as a whole person. So what we believe in how we live are two sides of the same coin, friends. And James wants us to express to his, he wants to express to us and to his hearers that the integrity we want is going to be when we walk and we believe in the real Jesus who has a real faith and who can inform you as a real person. So we're going to look at that in three primary ways. We're going to, we're going to see in, in 14, or 15 through 17 how Jesus shapes our hands. Then we're going to look at 19 through 20 and how Jesus shapes our heads. And then we're going to finish out with the end and how Jesus shapes our hearts, 21 through 26. So if you have your Bible, look with me at verse 15. He says here, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go, peace, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we see here that James begins his explanation by helping us see that shape faith or that faith shapes our hands. Gosh, that's a tongue twister for some reason. And James doesn't even travel outside of the community of faith for us to get this point. He says, if a brother or a sister says to you, I need help, essentially. I need clothes. I need filled. This signals to us that the practice we have inside the community of faith has direct correlation between the genuine faith that we all express in Jesus. So he goes on by expressing that nice words are nice, but they're not enough. Look with me at verse 16. James says, one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. In translation for our modern ears, I'll pray, with, I'll pray for you. God help you find somewhere to live. God help you find some clothing. God help you find some food to fill your stomach. James wants his hearers and us to see that faith in Jesus engages beyond our well wishes and warm words. Now I wanna say here that not everybody's need is always going to be on your shoulders. But there will be a moment, and we'll see here just in a second. Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just stop. James continues past the well wishes. And he says, without giving them the things they need. He uses the word giving here and what I want that to signal to us is two really important things. It, it signals to us the importance of presence and it signals to us the importance of provision. 
So it communicates presence because we have been given the unique opportunity in that moment to be the presence of Jesus to a brother and sister in need. And it shows us provision because it gives us the unique opportunity to show and to share the provision of Jesus to our brother and sister in need. So if you think back to the book of Acts, the early church had everything in common. Essentially, they had faith in the real Jesus, even though they were from all diverse backgrounds. And what does it say? No one lacked anything. Why? Why did no one lack anything? Because they saw that what they had in possession materially and what they had bound together in Jesus were of the same thing. So whatever they were given, it was not of their own. It was ours. So in short, a faith in Jesus that superficially unites us to the family of God, but does not actually benefit others in the family of God, isn't a faith in the real Jesus, but a false concept of Jesus. So if you've watched Netflix or anything, there's a, there's a movie on there called Hustle by Adam Sandler. I'm a huge fan of it because one, it's basketball. So, But Sandler plays a old NBA scout for the, U, or for the Philadelphia 76ers. And one night they shipped him off to Spain to, to look for the next lottery ticket because they had a high pick. And as he was wandering through the streets of Spain at night, he ran across the blacktop game. And at that blacktop game, the crowd was buzzing. And there was a man on the court wearing cargo shorts and construction boots. But he was amazing. He was tall and lanky, very skilled. And Adam Sandler's character had spent so much time in the gym looking at men who are trying to be lottery, pick, lottery picks in the NBA draft. And he goes to this backwoods blacktop court and finds Bo Cruz. And he looks at him and the first look that he's, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is, he's going to be the next best thing. And he found him in the middle of nowhere. So what does he do? He follows Bo all the way back to his house. His house in the projects in the middle of nowhere with his daughter and his mother. See, Bo is a construction worker by day, but he's a hustler at night. He knows that he's a gifted basketball player, but he's just trying to make some extra money for his, his daughter and his mother because they live on nothing. And Sandler looks at him, goes to his door and knocks on it, and he goes, hey, I'm some random guy from America, but this is crazy. Can I come in? And of course, he's already freaked out because this random dude followed him all the way back to his house. But he says to him, you could be a lottery pick in the NBA. And do you know what that means? Adam believed that Bo could be something. So what does he do? He convinces him to come back to America with him. He comes back to America and the 76ers say, no, we don't want him. So Adam Sandler's character is stuck with a dilemma. The 76ers don't want to pay for Bo to do all the workouts. They don't want to pay for Bo to live in America while he prepares for the draft. 
So Adam Sandler's character takes on all of his expenses. He buys him the hotel room, doesn't say a word about it, lets him eat all of the gourmet five-star room service because he's never had it before. He gets him up and he trains him every morning and he even buys him his first pair of basketball shoes ever. You see what happens here and what's being displayed by Adam Sandler's character is an imagery of what James is trying to show us is that when you believe something, it affects your hands. Sugarman didn't leave Bo with empty words saying, hey man, you're really great. I'm going to ship you back to Spain. You just lost your job because you left with me to come to America. He said, no, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to invest in you and I'm going to believe in you. And so his believies led him to help Bo flourish when the Sixers wouldn't. So what if Jesus had come to preach blessings, give kind words, and maybe a little bit of hope about believing in God? What if he just did that? That was it. And he didn't go to the cross and he didn't resurrect from the dead and he didn't make a way for you and I to be redeemed. Maybe if he just believed that God was his father and that's all he wanted you to know, but he didn't believe that you were worth it to go all the way that his father's will was the right thing and that dying for you and for me wouldn't be the greatest joy in the world. What if? When real faith is extended to others, we get to receive more joy while they flourish. Faith in the real Jesus causes us to get in the real dirt of other people's needs, especially those in the community of faith. But not only does it shape our hands within the community of faith, it also shapes our heads. Look with me at verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So James continues the discussion here in the real Jesus by showing us that he shapes our heads as well. What's shown to us here is how easy it is to ascend to certain theological thoughts about God and separate those from works for God. The hypothetical opponent says, you have faith and I have works. In the modern words, to each his own. You have faith, I have works, to each their own. You are free to have faith. I'm free to have works. Each person is given a different liking. There's a sense of a subjective mental ascension here that describes to us a false dichotomy, which is an easy task for our minds to take on. We like when things are binary, when it's red or blue state. In my case, Cubs or Cardinals, uh, Qdoba or Chipotle, etc. But this mental ascension to binary realities is what can split your integrity as believers. And, and either or thinking is what James is pushing against. It's not either or. What this divided thinking can lead us 
to our two extremes, an easy believism or moralism. Easy believism is something that has existed for decades within the Southern Christian psyche and really within the Midwestern Christian psyche. You could fill in the blanks. The American Christian psyche, uh, the thought that faith is a prayer and, oh, I believe in God or Jesus was real, um, but there's no need for my life to change. For James here, those two things don't exist. To this, James says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, your mental ascension to knowledge about God without life transformation is a divided life. It's the same as the demons who know, as James is quoting here, the Shema out of Deuteronomy, they know who God is. They know that he is one. They know that he is feared and they just shudder. There's no change. But on the other side of this, and this is just a brief sidebar, on the other side of this is moralism and it can rear its head and it's ugly. And you know all the right things to do or you work for the common good and not possess any faith in the real Jesus. Moralism isn't the main point here for James. It's really, he's pushing hard on the reality of easy believism, but we have to be aware of moralism as well. So Charles Blondin um, was a crazy man, but a talented man. If you're unfamiliar with that name, he walked the tightrope across the Niagara Falls multiple times on stilts, in a sack, in whatever crazy. I think at one point I read that he also wheeled out there some way to make omelets and lifted them down to the boat below to feed people omelets. And the crowd's going crazy and wild. And one time he decided to take a wheelbarrow across and he went all the way across with the wheelbarrow, got to the other side and he stopped. And the crowd was cheering and he's like, do you guys think that I could take this wheelbarrow and put someone in it. And the crowd's like, yes, yes, we believe in you. We believe in you. And he goes, which one of you is going to get in this wheelbarrow? Silence. No one wanted to get in the wheelbarrow. They believed in what he did. They saw what he did. They watched him go across in all of these various things and but when it came to be personal to them, when it came for them to put their hands in the dirt and to make a move, no one wanted to get in the wheelbarrow and let Mr. Blondine move them across the tightrope. So the crowd had mentally ascended to saying, yes, we believe in what you're doing. We believe in who you are. We believe that you could get a band across this tightrope, but not me. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to take those steps. I'm not going to freely express my faith in you through action. And this is the point that James is making. If Jesus has shaped our minds, it won't end as an intellectual exercise for us, but it will show itself as the implanted word, as James says earlier, making plain the wise and the useful work 
rather than showing you to be a foolish man and your works useless, as James says at the end. So at this moment in the conversation about faith and works, uh, we can begin to feel a little bit of tension of assurance. Like, how can I know that I'm even saved? How can I know that, that I'm walking with God? You might be saying that right now. And that leads us to the final point. Is Jesus, he shapes our hearts as well. So look with me at verses 21 through 26. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active alongside his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So now James turns our attention to the grand story of the Bible to help us really understand what God wants, what God desires, and how you can actually have assurance that you're his and that he's producing fruit in you. So he draws his hearers into two stories that they would be very familiar with, the stories of Abraham and Rahab. It is within these two powerful stories we see how faith in Jesus shapes our hearts. How can we know this to be true? It says here in verse 21, James says, Abraham was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. That's really abrasive. This phrase is loaded, but it helps us to see two important things. But we need a little context first. So if you don't remember the story completely, the story takes place in Genesis 22, way back in the beginning. And Abraham had been told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. And this would have been a gut-wrenching thing to Abraham, but he chose to trust God and to take his son to be sacrificed. And as the story unfolds, Isaac begins to see that his father had everything he needed for the sacrifice, but one thing. And as they took a step up that mountain, up that hill, Isaac said to his dad, where's the sacrifice? And if you remember, Abraham said to him, God will provide each step closer and closer to his son's potential death, Abraham was saying, God will provide. And here's the first important thing James does not want us to miss. Faith in Jesus grips all of our hearts in such a way that even the most precious things in our life pale in comparison to him. What did Jesus say? If you do not hate your father and your mother to follow me, He's using a certain type of wordplay here to get you to understand just the level and the depth to which your love for the Lord or your love for God should pale in comparison to that love for your spouse, your father, your mother. The second thing that James doesn't want us to miss is that faith that captivates the heart, it motivates our being. 
So look with me at verse 22. It's the beautiful dance of faith and works here. He says, faith was active, meaning faith never left the presence of Abraham. Every step he took was activated by faith from bundling the wood to setting the altar. And James says, faith was completed by his works. Now, when you hear completed, you're probably thinking, okay, that, that proves it right there. That's contradictory. James is saying that I'm saved by my works. It was completed. Now, what James really is saying, and one, of the, one easy way to translate this is confirmation. It was confirmed. So the faith was active. And as Abraham went to sacrifice his son, his faith and trust in God was actually confirmed that, he, that God had all of his heart. God had all of who he was. Now, at first, <clears throat> you might think, aha, right, there was the contradiction. He said justified by works in 21. Now he's got the completed faith in 22. And to this, I just want to tell you to keep reading because you're going to miss something very important if you, if you stop right there. So looking at verse 23, look with me just for a second. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Abraham, again, this line will seem like it just comes in succession right after him saying Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac, but it doesn't. James actually goes even deeper. Years earlier, when he says here, that God, um, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That happened before Abraham ever had Isaac. That happened before Abraham ever knew that he was going to be the father of many nations. In that moment, he was being told by God, I will make you a father of many nations. I will bless you to be a blessing to others. The salvation of the world essentially is going to come through you. And you know what? Abraham looked at God and he believed in him and he left everything he had to pursue this blessing and this promise from God. And so what James is doing here is he's saying that blessing, that promise, that what James calls friendship with God is what motivated Abraham to prove that he had faith by his works. That's why it was justified. That's why it was completed. Not because he earned salvation through his works, but because God had already counted him as righteous and he believed that God was faithful. He believed that God was who he says he was. So no, Abraham knew God here in this moment and God was his friend. And that kind of intimacy with God, with the God of the universe will grip your hearts when you know God and he calls you friend. So John Wesley uh, is known to be one of the greatest men of faith in the last couple centuries. And there's a story of Wesley where he'd spent years doing things for God, reading the Bible, sharing his faith, and all, by all means had the outward appearance of a good man. And as the story goes, he jumped on a ship traveling back to America with a massive amount of people. And during this travel, a storm broke out and it actually began to sink the ship. And while all the Englishmen were crying crazy out, screaming, wailing, there was a group of Moravians among them, calm, 
singing, praying. And once they were saved and back to shore, Wesley looked at, the, at one man and he said, how were you not afraid? How were you not scared? He goes, we do not fear death because we know who our God is. So in the moments of, of trial and the moment of great peril, they were singing calmly. They were praying calmly. And that shook Wesley. And he couldn't shake it for the longest time. Until this one moment where I grabbed something out of a journal entry from him, he wrote, in my return to England, January 1738, being in intimate danger of death and very uneasy on that account, I was strongly convinced that the cause of that uneasiness was unbelief and that the, <clears throat> and that the gaining a true living faith was the one thing needful for me. But still, I fixed not this faith on its right object. I meant only faith in God, not faith in or through Christ. So you see, through the witness of this group of Christians, God was able to capture the heart of John Wesley. And in the story of Abraham, God captured the heart of Abraham. And in the story of Rahab, God captured the heart of an, of an enemy prostitute to save two spies. And that's what James wants us to see here, is a heart that is captured by God and that is transformed to walk with God and to live out that which they believe. Their believes and their actions go together. So as I conclude, consider Jesus. It was the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Jesus's heart was captured. This is how you have your assurance. It's because Jesus's heart was captured by God that Jesus knew God deeply, that Jesus knew the need of the world. And he didn't just say, go in peace, be well and fulfilled. He climbed that mountain. He hung on that cross. And he said to you and to me, my peace be with you. He said to you and to me, be filled for I am the bread of life. He said to you and to me, for those who thirst, come to the waters and drink. Faith in works, my friends, is like a beautiful symphony. And Jesus is the concert master. You and I get to take our chair. We get to play our instrument while he conducts the sound, and we get to read the sheet music. But as long as we're fixed on him, as long as we're allowing him to conduct it, as long as we're following his lead, our faith and works are always going to be together. And you are always going to have assurance because Jesus is who he says he is. And that, for that, I want to pray. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are so kind to us. We thank you for the reality that we can live as whole people because of a faith in a real Jesus. 
So we ask that that would transform us and we would be forever changed day by day, moment by moment. In Jesus' name, amen.